I, I really shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't uh, say this, but I do have my network of undercover agents out across the crowd, and uh, the word has come back. Don't try to identify them. They're too deeply buried. You'll never spot them. Uh, but they are, the word is coming back that, uh, that we need a little clarification of terminology and sort of the direction as to where we tried to go last night, and uh, also for our new folks that are here this morning, I give them a chance to kind of catch up as to where we are. When we're talking about the reprocessing of anger into grace, it's on two levels. One is God reprocesses his anger into grace for us on the cross. And if he didn't do so, the other option is punishment. And then we are called upon, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to reprocess our anger into grace as we deal with others. Now, I'm almost sure that I used this illustration, little parable that I created, in a sermon which I preached at Ascension. And so if you've already heard it, and I think I did use it last summer also, and some of you were at uh, at Trinity where I was lecturing, and I I used this illustration, not a parable. Uh, Every parable has weak spots, and I've had all kinds of moms tell me about the weak spots of this one. But it, I think I hope it has some, some uh, strong spots as well. And it's an attempt to try and say what is the New Testament understanding of the atonement as I see it. So the story goes as follows. Mom is going to have a tea party, morning coffee clutch, with some of her friends. She has a little boy whose name is Johnny, and so the dining room, kitchen are all together, and mom puts a nice tablecloth over the table. Then she takes a glass pitcher of lemonade and puts it on the top of the table, and then she tells Johnny, Johnny, don't pull on the tablecloth. If you do, the pitcher of lemonade is going to come down on top of you, and you're going to get hurt, so just don't do it. She then turns to get the coffee ready and, and, uh, and a plate of goodies to eat. And she kind of looks over her shoulder. Guess what? Johnny's pulling on the tablecloth. And the pitcher of lemonade is just about to come down on it. So the story now has three endings. <laughs> Ending number one is mom is mad. She rushes over, she grabs the pitcher of lemonade and says, I told you not to pull on the tablecloth. Now you take this. And she she dumps the lemonade on his head. (laughs) Okay, this is Islam, folks. And there's big chunks of Christians out there thinking these terms. God gives the law, you break it, you get beaten up on. You, God makes the law, God gives the law, you better obey it because if you don't, you're going to be in big time trouble. God will get angry and he's going to punish you. Okay, ending number two introduces a third party and this is Billy, an older brother in the next room. So mom sees the pitcher of lemonade about to come down on Johnny's head and she rushes over. She grabs the pitcher of lemonade and she says, Johnny, I should dump this on you, but if I do, you're going to catch your death of cold. Billy! (laughs) She she calls it Billy and she dumps, dumps the lemonade on Billy. And then she says to Johnny, see what you made me do? 
Johnny crawls under the table, starts crying. This is the introduction of a third party. All right. Third ending is mom sees the pitcher of lemonade about to come down on Johnny's head. And so she has a quick flash of, let's call it, anger slash deep disappointment. If Johnny had just listened to me and done what I told him, we wouldn't have this problem. She rushes across the room. She knocks the pitcher of lemonade aside. It breaks. She sustains a deep cut in her arm. She takes the towel off her shoulder and she wraps up her arm, but the blood is still dripping out of her fingers. Johnny is back in the corner of the room crying. She does not say to him, Don't cry, Johnny, because I'm going to call in Billy from the next room and I'm going to spank Billy instead of you. This won't help. Johnny is not crying because he's scared about who's going to get spanked. Johnny is crying because mom is getting hurt for him. And it's his fault. That's why he's crying. Mom reaches out and embraces Johnny and says, It's okay, Johnny. I love you anyway. And I forgive you. And in that warm embrace and that promise of forgiveness, Johnny's guilt melts away. There is no third party. There's no Billy in the next room. Now this third story, third ending, is my understanding of the doctrine of the atonement in the New Testament. When you introduce a third party, you end up with Zoroastrianism. Namely, you've got a good God over here and a bad God over here and the bad God's trying to beat up with us and the good God is trying to protect us. So let's help out the good God and see if we can avoid the bad God. That's not right. Yes, yes, Jesus is a substitute. But Jesus is God himself. Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Mom is in herself as she suffers in order to protect Johnny from the results of his own disobedience. She takes the wrath and he doesn't get the depth of her love and he doesn't get the fact that the law which mom gave to him wasn't just you do what I say because I say it. There was a reason behind it, and the reason had to do with tablecloths and the nature of glass pitchers and the law of gravity and little boys. And it is in Johnny's interest to do what mom says because that law grows out of mom's love. He didn't understand that. And he didn't get the point that mom loves him regardless until he saw mom getting hurt for him. Now, that that flash of deep disappointment slash anger, mom has to reprocess into grace because if she doesn't, it's going to be the pitcher of lemonade. Because she is able to do that, she rushes across and she gets hurt and Johnny doesn't understand the depth of mom's love until he sees mom getting hurt for him. Now he understands it. All of this is as I understand it, is at least the right direction 
for our trying to understand the great mystery of the cross. Now, we're talking about this weekend about the reprocessing of anger into grace. This takes place on two levels. One is God reprocesses his anger into grace for us. And this theme begins in the Hebrew scriptures where we find in the book of Hosea, God says that God is angry because Israel has disobeyed. But God says, I am man, I am God and not man, and I will not come with my fierce anger. And it is out of his love for Israel that he will set aside his fierce anger and will come with love and compassion. Well, the central theme of the prophecy of Hosea. Jesus takes this, builds upon it, brings it to its ultimate expression in the story of the cross, which we will be looking at in our second session this morning. Now, the story we looked at last night had anger reprocessed into grace on two levels. And if you didn't quite get it, that's fine. I was not really clear, and I'm sorry about that. The, the woman watches Jesus getting publicly humiliated. And she gets angry. But in her anger, she doesn't shout at this crowd of, of Pharisees sitting there. You no good so-and-so. You have a guest and you don't even care about your guest. And all you do is insult him in public. And he's done nothing except tell us that God loves sinners like me. And why don't you just blank, 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 blank. And then she stomps out. She reprocesses her anger into grace and she makes up for the mistakes of the host. The things the host should have done for Jesus, she does them in place of, in place of the host. She brings her anger into a reprocessed form as a form of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's what God does to us when we haven't earned it. And it comes out not just in ideas and feelings, but in concrete acts in history. The grace of God is what God does in history for us to save. It comes in its climax in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. All right. The other level of anger and grace in the story is Jesus is upset. He's been publicly humiliated before this crowd of people by the refusal to give him the kiss of greeting, by not bringing the water to wash his hands and his feet, and not bringing a little bit of olive oil, which was the soap of the first century. What does he do with this anger? He realizes that the crowd is mad at the woman because the woman has shown him up, uh, uh, shown them up very badly by doing the things that they avoided doing. She has acted in a gracious manner to the guest, showing up their failures to do so. She is now in danger of getting beaten up on by them. Jesus takes that anger upon himself. He reprocesses his anger into grace for the woman, protecting her by getting the crowd mad at him rather than being mad at her. We'll see that tomorrow morning again in the story of Zacchaeus. And I'm not going to give away the story because then, <laughs> because then, you, then you won't have to. Uh, I hope this helps a little bit. We're talking about two levels of how grace fu functions. God acts out in costly demonstrations of grace in history for us. When we receive that, when we allow that to fill our lives, when the Holy Spirit makes that ring true in our hearts, we are now empowered through the Holy Spirit to be able to reprocess the anger that we face and reprocess it into grace. 
Okay, now would you, uh, with this morning, we are going to continue in our discussion, and would you take your study sheets, we've got some parables of Jesus that we want to go through, and then the second hour we will begin with Paul. So would you open to A5, please? We went through this in lightning speed last night, and this is the theology that comes out of the great story of Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And the one that is important, important well, for forgiveness and its effects, the more forgiveness the believer receives from Jesus, the more costly love he, she offers to Jesus. Sin, two types of sin are clarified. Law keepers and lawbreakers are sinners. The woman is a sinner and so are the Pharisees. They think they're not sinners because they keep the law in a precise fashion. And Jesus shows them up to be equally in need of the kind of grace that he is able to mediate to them. Three, the cross. Jesus offers a costly demonstration of unexpected love to the woman. In the process, he is exposing one of the deepest levels of his saving ministry, which climaxes on a cross. Number four is our theme. Anger and grace. Jesus' hurt and anger is expressed in his attack of Simon, or on Simon, sorry. Uh, this anger is reprocessed into grace for the woman and for Simon. Even Simon is forgiven little. Simon is dealt with, in a very, uh, with very gently. He is not accused of being a great sinner like the woman. Number five, forgiveness, faith, obedience, salvation, and peace. These five great themes are linked in a single story. The woman is forgiven and saved through grace by a faith that is obedient. She does something. She doesn't just think something. The result of the process of the interaction of these four great themes is peace. Women, prophethood, discipleship and suffering, Christology, a decision. All of that you can read at your leisure and contemplate on it. And would you t- turn the page, please? <laughs> We're supposed to be done at what time? 1025. 10.25. Okay, great. Okay. All right. Now, here is one of the, uh, one of the great stories of the New Testament, of parables of Jesus. And the setting is significant. Starting with Isaiah 25, uh, there is in, in the Hebrew Scriptures this affirmation of one day God is going to spread a great banquet. And that great banquet are going to be for the elect and also the nations will come and the, the Gentiles will be a part of that great banquet. There is then reflection in the material that we have between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament And it talks about this, and it kind of waters it down a bit. They're not sure about whether they want those Gentiles coming in. And then you get to the the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls makes quite clear that only law-abiding Jews are going to be at the banquet, and the banquet is now called the, the banquet, the messianic banquet of the end times. We come to the end times, and there's going to be a big banquet, and the Messiah is going to be there. And Qumran said, only those who keep the in a precise fashion can possibly get in the door and the blind and the lame and the maimed and those kind of people, they're definitely not going to be allowed in. All right. So then at the table and Jesus is reclining with a group of scholars and somebody says, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is a challenge. 
He's saying to Jesus, uh, please, would you expose your theology of the end times? When the great banquet of the Messiah and all true believers at the end times, who's going to be there? Would you clarify this for us? Now, Jesus is supposed to say, oh, that we might keep the law in a very precise fashion, that on those that great day, we might be allowed to be part with the Messiah and the believers at that day. If he t- says that, then they check that off the list. Okay, he's orthodox on that one. We'll check him out with a few other things later on. That isn't the way he answers. He does tell a story about... He sent his servant at the hour of the banquet to say, Come, because all is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, we also have two invitations when we have a banquet. The first invitation is you call up your friends. We're going to have a dinner party Friday night. Why don't you come on around and we'll have a nice time. They say yes. They come. They sit in your living room. You scurry around or your spouse or whoever and then the food is lifted and you put it on the dining room table and then you uh, uh, announce to the guests, uh, the food is getting cold, please everybody continue your conversations, but please come to the dining room, we want to eat the food while it's still hot. That's the second invitation. Food's ready, please come. And the first person stands up and says, "Um, sorry, I've got to mow the grass, walks out the door. And the second guest says, "Um, I haven't fed the cat, walks out the door. The third one says, I've got to catch up on my email and walks out the door. (laughs) Now, why did you say yes yesterday? Why did you show up? Why did you sit down and wait until the food is hot? Now you get the second invitation and now you offer your excuses. And the excuses are obviously calculated to insult the host. All right, let's look at the excuses. He sent his servant at the hour of the banquet to say, Come, because all is now ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I pray you, have me excused. It's polite, but it's also thinly veiled intent to insult the host. Because nobody buys land without looking at it. The agri- this is an agricultural field, and so the land of the Middle East that you can farm is quite limited. Most of it's desert. And any piece of ground that you can farm, you have to look at it very carefully. If it's on a hillside, what about the terraces? What kind of shape are they in? Are they broken and you're going to have to spend a year repairing them? How about the depth of the soil underneath the places where stuff is grown? What was the crop last year? How much money did they make off of it? What about the year before that? You will check the profits of the yield of that that field probably for at least five years. Does it face the southern sun? Because we get our water water in the winter time and the sun isn't very low and if it faces the sun in the winter time then you can grow grapes if it's on the other side and you don't get much sun you can't grow grapes that's very important for you to know you've got to check that field very very carefully before you even consider buying it and this guy says well i i bought the field now i'm going to go out and look at it you call up your spouse and say i just bought a new house and i i'll be late for supper because i got to drive around and find out what part of town it's in and what kind of shape it is 
that's not the way you buy a house. I mean, just, you know, it's obvious you're trying to create a very little, thin, ridiculous excuse. The second one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must examine them. A yoke of oxen must pull of the same strength because if they don't, they're useless. And you've got to try them out for a number of hours before you have to see not only are they of equal strength, do they reply to you, do they respond to your orders, and do they tire at the same speed? All of that you have to know before you even consider buying. Not, this is not an ox. This is not a horse. This is two. They have to be able to work together. So to say you've bought five is like saying you've bought five used cars and you're going down the lot to see if they will start. All right. The third one, now notice, the first two, I did this, therefore I did this, please have me excused. The second one, I did this, and therefore I did this, uh, please have me excused. The third one says, I have a woman in the back of the house. <clears throat> uh, I'm busy, can't come. Okay, Mr. Loverboy, you're going to be home that night. There's a gesture that goes with this, which I won't use. This is too much. The servant is not going to put up with having his master insulted anymore. He goes home and reports, and the householder, in anger, he is mad. And he says, go and tell those people that I consider myself free after these public insults, to carry out any action. And when their barns burn next week, they will understand that I am not to be messed with in the way in which they have assumed that they can put me down in public and insult me in this fashion. I'm a man of honor in this community, and I know how to defend my honor. That's what he's supposed to say. He doesn't say it. He reprocesses his anger into grace and he says, go out and invite the people who don't get invited to banquets. The people who can't pay me back. The people that nobody invites to anything. Go in and bring in the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. These were precisely the categories that the folks writing the Dead Sea Scrolls down in Qumran said he's not going to be allowed into the banquet. He's debating with them as he does this. The servant said, sir, what is commanded is be done and there's still other room. This guy reaches out to those outside the community and he finds this so exciting. Wow, he never got turned on this way before. And he becomes a part of the process of reaching out beyond their own community to those outside of it with this message of hope and of blessing. And he, uh, and he, 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 okay, you go do that too. Go out into the highways and hedges. That means people outside the community. This is probably a symbol for the Gentiles. And compel them to enter. Now, this is what... Yeah, the medieval church used as an excuse for forcing people into the Christian faith. This has been abused all the way through history. That has nothing to do with what it's all about. You see, the people outside the community know that they are being invited to a banquet 
for which they have no reason to be invited. They can't pay back, and they're not even of the same tribe. They are outsiders. They're not of the same ethnic community. And, of course, the master doesn't mean it. He's not serious. He's just being polite. And so your reply is, uh, oh, oh, yeah, oh, thank you. Oh, yes, yeah, I, I understand. You're a master, very noble gentleman. V- very kind of him to, to invite me. But, but I've got to see a man about a horse. I, you know, I really can't. Or, or you say, uh, well, I've just eaten. I, I really can't. I can't come. Yes, some of the time, of course. Oh, yes, I understand. Uh, very kind man, very, very nice man. I've got very high regard for your master. And this, this conversation goes on and on and on and on and on. And finally, the only way you can convince this kind of a person in this kind of a situation in the village scene in the Middle East is to grab him by the hand and you drag him in. Now, you're not dragging him in against his will. Grace is unbelievable. Why? Well, I didn't earn it. How could it be true? Grace is not only amazing, it's unbelievable, and sometimes it's infuriating. (laughs) You're going to extend grace to those people? Good grief, it's supposed to be for us, not for them. So here, this is unbelievable. This great man is inviting me, a total outsider, to come into his banquet. He can't be serious. And the the servant is going to go over all of these excuses. Then finally he says, look, he means it. Come on. And he takes him and a little extra persuasion is required if it is pure grace that is being offered, which is what is being offered here. He's not being forced against his will. He wants to go. It's just he really can't believe that they're serious. Awful lot of people around us have a very low self-opinion. They think they're worthless. How could God possibly send his son to die for me? I'm not worthy of it. A little special persuasion is required when we're talking about the pure grace of God. And that's what this parable is all about. The master reprocesses his intense anger into grace and extends it to the unworthy within the community and to the strangers of other ethnic origins outside the community. Okay, now would you turn the page, please? This is a great story that we all know very, very well. If I I allow myself to push my own button, we'll never get through anything else because I usually sort of droll on for about three hours when I get going on this one. And we don't have near enough time to do that. We want to just pick up our theme because of the fact that our theme shows up in this parable four times. And quite often it's not noticed. Four times somebody in the story has to reprocess anger into grace. And without that reprocessing of anger, the story is going to fall apart. And it doesn't. Now, first of all, notice how carefully it's put together. We have got what I I didn't use the phrase yesterday, but with the prophets, whenever we get a one, two, three, four, three, two, one ring composition and four little sections, seven little sections with the climax in the middle, it happens so often with the Hebrew prophets that I decided it needed a name. And so I'm now calling it the prophetic rhetorical template. 
And this prophetic rhetorical template is also used by Jesus. It is also used by the apostles. And it shows up, as we will see later on today, in 1 Corinthians. So that's what we have here. Number one talks about death in that when the young son asks for his inheritance, when his father is still alive and in good health, it means, Dad, why don't you drop dead? He is supposed to wait until his father is about to die, and then the father says, I'm going to make the inheritance, and the boys and, and the girls say, No, Dad, don't discuss the inheritance. No, you're going to live to be 100. You're going to get over this illness that you've got. We don't want you to discuss that. And he says, No, no, I'm an old man. I feel we're coming to the end. I'm going to make the inheritance. That's the way it's supposed to happen. That's the way it happens with Jacob. But no, this kid decides he's going to get the inheritance now, and his father is supposed to say to him, Little boy, when your mother and I decide that we're going to divide up our inheritance, we will do so. It doesn't happen to be any of your business. Go get a job. Amen. (laughs) Okay. That's what we expect the father to say. He has every right to say it. Okay, that's death, a death wish on the part of the boy. We get resurrection down in number seven. He was dead and is alive. In number two, the prodigal loses everything. And in number six, everything is restored to him. In number three, we have unqualified rejection. He can't eat the pig food and no one gives him anything. And in number five, we've got unqualified acceptance. In the middle, we have a soliloquy, and the soliloquy is in two parts. And like all soliloquies, the actor on stage, the younger son, tells the audience exactly what's going on. And the two parts are, problem is, I want more food. Solution, I'll work and buy more food. Give me job training, and I'll go out and get a job, and I'll make money, and I'll pay back what I lost, and then you can have me back into the house. All right, would you turn the page, please? The second half of the story follows exactly the same pattern, only there's a scene missing at the end. Number seven is not in the scripture. It's the ending that the listener expects. We start off with the older son stands aloof, and then he's told your brother is here and there's a feast, and he gets mad. The father offers costly love in a dramatic action. Now the older son gives a speech, and the speech is in two halves. And the first half is the problem, namely, more food for me. Sounds like his brother. Yes, it is. And then the second part is, you, the father, have the wrong solution. You've ended up with more food for him instead of more food for me. But the rhetorical structure is the same as the other one. It's the main character on stage is giving a speech and the speech is broken into two halves and it circles around the question of who has what to eat. Now the costly love is expressed in language and finally we now talk about number six about your brother is found and there's a feast and joy and that parallels number two up at the top and everybody longs to hear number seven which will parallel number one. When you use ring composition, such as we have here, for an audience that understands them, da 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 yeah, everybody knows it. You know the tune in the back of your head. You know what that note, last note is going to be. When you don't catch the tune, and you're not used to this kind of structure for literature, it's a thousand years old for the Jewish listener. 
And so the, that Jewish listener is ready to hear that last scene come in and it's missing because it hasn't happened. And, and the, the, the scene is open and we don't know yet what is going to happen and there are two options, either go into the banquet or not go in. All right, now with that in mind, uh, with the marvelous structure in mind, it, do we trace the structure to Jesus partially? Do we structure the, the, the careful uh, wording of it to the early apostles who say, we got to get this gem down and it better be short or it's going to go on for about a half an hour and that they help get this into this marvelous rhetorical structure? Could be the Spirit of God has moved through both Jesus and the people who heard him, and here is the end result, and it is absolutely magnificent. All right, the first point at which there has to be the reprocessing of anger into grace is the initial request. The Father manages to grant the request, and what he's granting is the freedom to reject love. And that is ultimate freedom. And when love sincerely offered is rejected, the person who endures that rejection of love suffers the agony of rejected love, the deepest pain known to the human heart. And almost all of you are old enough to have experienced it. That's what this father endures. The agony of rejected love. All right. So what happens next is the kid goes into the far country and he loses his money and he ends up feeding pigs and nobody gives him anything. That's a, a, that's a, a, a link to the story of Jacob. This is a parallel to the story of Jacob. The story of Jacob, there's a, two, there's a patriarch in that story and in this story. And in both stories, there is a, two sons. And in both stories, the younger son asks for his inheritance when he has no right to ask for it. And in both stories, he uses underhanded means. And in both stories, the younger son leaves and goes into a far country. And in both stories, the older son stays at home. And in both stories, in the far country, there's a reversal of wealth. Jacob starts off poor and he ends up rich, and the prodigal starts off rich and he ends up poor. Jesus has taken the story of Jacob and he's flipped it on its head. And any Pharisee listening to it will spot what he's doing. In both cases, the son in the far country decides to come back, and on the way back there is a divine incarnation scene in both stories. In one story, it's an angel. In the other story, it's the father. And in both stories, the divine incarnation scene involves body contact. In one case, it's a wrestling match. In the other case, it's embrace. In both stories, the best robe of one member of the family is put on another member of the family. In the story of Jacob, it's stolen for deception. In the story which Jesus tells, it's given for reconciliation. You can go on and on, and I've found 51 of these, and I've written a book on it. And I, I wrote to N.T. Wright, my good friend, and after I found about 20 of them, I said, Tom, I've never... Uh, you know, I don't know of anybody who's written on this. Now, you have read everything, and, <laughs> and, and, I don't, and you remember everything. So please tell me whether or not there's already a dissertation in Oxford somewhere that's covered this. And he wrote back and said, Ken, I'm not aware of anybody who's noticed this or worked on it. Go for it. So with his encouragement, I did so. And so uh, 51 points of comparison. And one of them is this phrase, no one gave him anything. 
Jacob in the far country is working for his relatives, and his, and, and his relatives say to him, Hey, kid, uh, you're a member of the family, but still we ought to pay you. We ought to give you something. Ah, uh, but, but the but prodigal, no one gave him anything. That's another thread by which Jesus is tying these two stories together. And, of course, the point is Jesus is saying the, story, the, the great story of Jacob is a great story, and it has given us our identity and given us our name, and it needs to be updated. It's, we build on it, but we are going to reshape it into a new story, and Jesus puts himself at the heart of that new story. Extremely sophisticated. It is extremely Jewish. And it is extremely audacious that this young rabbi should presume to retell the story which gives the community its name and its identity. And they look around and say, hey, this kid is dangerous. Either we get him quieted or we're going to have to take care of him because he's really shaking up some really important stuff, which he is. All right, uh, back to our story. Here we go. So this kid in the far country, it says he came to himself. Now, here is where we've got a big-time problem. And this is centuries old, and I'm trying to get this problem corrected. When we read that phrase, at least for the last thousand years, he came to himself, we've read it as he repented. Now, if that's what it means, then Jesus is a Muslim. Why do I say that? In the first story, this is one of three stories. In the first story, there is a lost sheep and the shepherd does not sit in the sheepfold back in the village and say, that dumb, dumb, blankety-blank sheep, I don't know why it wandered off. It better take care of itself. The sheep wanders back and starts bleeding and the shepherd looks over the edge of the sheepfold. Oh, you made it back. Great. Come on in. Then there's the story of the woman. The woman does not say, I wonder what happened to that coin. Uh, yeah, that dumb coin. <laughs> Click. It flips up off of the floor and, and it lands on the table and she says, oh, there you are. I'm glad you found yourself. And she picks it up and puts it in the coin purse. Now, the shepherd has got to go out and find the sheep and at great cost carry it back and the woman has to, with great effort, find the uh, lost sheep But if we read the story of the prodigal son in the way we have read it the last thousand years, this kid in the far country decides he's going to go home. He goes home on his own. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any grace. There is no need for the word to become flesh and dwelt among us. There is no savior. There is no death. There is no resurrection. There is no plan of salvation. There is no need for redemption because he doesn't need any redemption. All he needs to do is start following the law. And he's managed to do that. And he's pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. And Jesus is a good Muslim. You return to God and God will accept you. You make up for your own problems. Thank you very much. We don't want any redeemers. Now, don't think Islam hasn't noticed this. For a thousand years, they've been throwing this, st- this story into the face of Christians. And Christians don't know really quite what to say. I had this happen to me at a big, uh, big international Christian Muslim bridge-building conference uh, sponsored by the Archbishop of Canterbury in, in, uh, uh, in Qatar. We met there a few years ago, and the, one of the Muslims in our s- s- subgroup just uh, sort of said, well, you know, this story is an Islamic story. Jesus is obviously a Muslim, and you've made a Christian out of him, or at least you've tried to. 
And um, Bishop Michael Nazir Ali, whose name may be known to you, good friend of mine, a convert from, from Shiite Islam to Christianity, and, and now a, one of the great Christian world leaders, he winked at me, he's read my books, and said, Ken, you have to reply. <laughs> and I said, Michael, I can't, it'll take me about two hours. Then he got a grim look in his eyes, he said, you don't have any choice, you must reply. I did, really fast, and, and the gentleman, an Englishman who's become a Muslim, who's a professor of theology at Cambridge, Tim Winter, mind like a steel trap and angry. And when I got done, he said, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> I shook his cage, that's all I can say. And Michael agreed with midnight. He said, you shook his cage. And whether I convinced him, don't know. But at least, at least he, he heard me. Only one other time in the, in the New Testament do we have the phrase, he came to himself. And this is in the book of Acts, where Peter, an angel, gets Peter out of prison and then leads him to the middle of Jerusalem, and he thinks it's a dream. And all of a sudden, the angel fades away, and Peter, it says, he came to himself and realized that this is for real. He came to himself means he came to his senses. Nothing more, nothing less. So when this kid comes to his senses, he figures out, I've got one more card to play. My cards are mostly finished. I've thrown them all away. I got one more card. What's that? I'll go home and ask Dad for job training. And tell him, I know I can't move into the house until I get the money back. But you send me off to the next... I can't even live in town. They won't have me. But you send me off to the next village. You give me a little backing because Abu Joseph over there is not going to train me as a carpenter without your support. So you tell him it's okay. He can trust me yet once more. And I'll go over there and I'll learn to be a skilled carpenter and then I'll save my money. And one day I'll walk in and I'll be able to pay back the money I lost. When that happens, then you can let me back into the house. I'm not asking you to come into the house now. That's the plan. What's he going to do? He's going to save himself. No grace required. He starts home for one reason. He's hungry. Now, this doesn't sound like repentance to me. Does he say, I broke my mother's heart? No. Does he say, I humiliated my father before the village? No. Does he say, the economic resources of the entire extended clan have been critically damaged because of my stupidity? No. All he says is, I'd like to eat. How can I get back on the gravy train? One chance, job training, go to the next village, save my money. One day I'll be able to pay it back. We, the readers of the story, know that the issue is not the money. The issue is the broken heart. The issue is not the broken law. It's the broken relationship. And if he comes back and gets job training and pays back, then there will be two self-righteous prigs in the house instead of one. <laughs> this is not going to help. 
The Father is after a response of love to his offer of love, costly love. That costly love was always there, but this kid never saw it. He doesn't want reconciliation. He doesn't think he needs it. He couldn't care less about the old man. All he wants to do is pay his debts. What he thinks are his debts, the money. He's going to keep the law. All right, then what happens? The father is at a great distance and he sees him and says, Oh, that no good, worthless scumbag. <laughs> so he's come back. From what I can see, he's in rags. I wonder what smart aleck excuses he's going to have for losing the money. I'm sure he's going to try and manipulate me into getting something more. That's what he always did in the past. Let's wait and see what he has to say. The father offers a costly demonstration of unexpected love because the father has already reprocessed his anger into grace. If he had not done so, there would be no self-emptying love offered in that run down the road. Now, what have we done with the story? We have assumed that the first thing that happened was the son offers his speech and then the father accepts. But that isn't the way the story is written. The story is written is the first thing that happens is the costly love is offered and then the son responds by accepting and the son does not say, fashion out of me a craftsman because he gives up any hope to make up for what has happened. He knows now the issue is the broken heart and not the money and he has no bright ideas about how he's going to solve the problem. All right, Rembrandt, the great... The great uh, drawing, uh, painting of Rembrandt, it's in St. Petersburg, and it's about, apparently about eight feet high, and it's there. And uh, Henry Nouwen went and sat for a week in front of that and wrote the marvelous book, The Return of the Prodigal. The key word return does not show, not show up in the story. That's a theological word. Return equals Repent in biblical language, Old Testament and New Testament. It never shows up. Four times we expect it, but all four times other language is used. Jesus and the apostles are very careful see that the word return does not show up in anything that the son does. Now, what is Rembrandt's picture? Rembrandt has the prodigal on his knees like this, rags, and his face is sideways, and you just look at his back, and you know that this is total abject surrender. The father is reaching down over his head and has his hands on the back of the prodigal. So what happens first? The boy repents and offers himself in total abject surrender and the father accepts. That's Islam. Not Christianity. They've got it backwards. All right, I've got a book, wonderful book, of a collection of art over the last 500 years uh, that was put together by a, a Lutheran a, a musician, a, a music minister, now retired, and he spent his entire life roaming the world and collecting artwork on the story of the prodigal son. And uh, he's given his entire collection now to a Lutheran seminary up in Wisconsin, and a book has been published. And I went through it, and there are 27 
pictures of some kind or another of the prodigal on the point of his return. And all but two of them, both of them South American, the prodigal is on his knees, the influence of Rembrandt. So that misunderstanding that first the prodigal comes back, having, having repented in the far country, he comes back in total surrender, and then the father accepts his surrender. The film for which I wrote the script and uh, was, uh, was professionally produced in Cairo with wonderful actors, uh, well-known in the Arab film industry. And I was, I was on the set as theological advisor and managed to prevent a few disasters. But <laughs> in this one case, it was really a bad disaster. I wasn't there when they filmed this particular section. We'd been up most of the night, and I was just too tired and didn't make it. Anyway, so when I saw what they'd done, sure enough, they had the, the, the prodigal rushes up, stands there, offers his apology. Then the father rushes over and embraces him. Had it backwards. And the people uh, they're in charge of the film, uh, of the company that was making this in Cyprus, uh, one Brit and one Australian and one New Zealander, I said, this is, this is a disaster. He's got it backwards. And it was a Coptic Orthodox director. So this is a Christian. And they said to me, the cutting room, the cutting room. Uh, we are in control of the cutting room. And that's going to happen in Cyprus. And, you know, don't discuss. See, if I discussed with him and had him had to do it over again, then he would have been publicly humiliated and that would have been really bad news. That would have soured my relationship with him and with the cast for the rest of the, the, rest of the month that we had trying to finish the film. So I couldn't do that. I was really, really up a creek. So, he, so they said, no, no, in the cutting room, we'll just snip, snip, snip. We'll just reverse it which is what we did. (laughs) Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. While the prodigal is still a prodigal and he's still stupid and he still doesn't get it, and he still thinks it's the law, and he still thinks that he's only a servant, and he still thinks that the issue is the money. All of that junk is still in his head. The father comes out in a costly demonstration of unexpected love because the father has already reprocessed his anger into grace, and thereby that costly love can be offered. All right, now the prodigal in the far country is a Muslim. But Jesus is a Christian. Now you have the three stories in harmony. The shepherd has to go down and out to find the sheep. And the woman has to go down and out to find the coin. And the father has got to go down and out to rescue his boy. The boy came back geographically. But he did not come back to his father's heart. That didn't happen until he was able to see the cost of his father's agony of rejected love. That agony of rejected love was there every day before he left. He never got it until he saw it in a demonstration. And that's what the cross is all about. We have to see it. Now we understand it. It is not just the pain of Jesus at one moment in time. It is the agony of rejected love from the story of Adam through the sin of humankind to the end of all history. It's a window into the broken heart of God.
and the kind of love that God is willing to show to us and offer to us. For a while, I was serving as a pastor of an underground uh, congregation in Saudi Arabia. And in, we were in Riyadh. And in Riyadh, the, the princes of most of the, the really wealthy princes of Saudi Arabia live. And so you're driving along, and here is a wall about 30 feet high. And the wall goes on and on and oh, oh yes, one of the princes. He's got about three square miles in his lot inside. Wonder what the house is like. You don't know because you can't see it. Then here comes the gate. And so there are bumps there because you have to slow down. And armed men at the gate so that in case you get any trouble, you're going to get blasted off the road. And then you come opposite the gate. And you quickly look in because you've got to keep moving. And you see an artificial hill and there's grass and there are peacocks wandering around and there are fountains and lots of marble and a building that cost about $300 million. A little summer place. Okay, now you go on and the 30-foot wall returns. But now I know what's inside. Why? At one point in history, I I was able to look in and see the palace. I go on and I know what's back there. Human history moves along, and at one point, there is a window into the broken heart of God. It's called Golgotha. We go on in history, but now the mystery of the broken heart of God over the sin of humankind is known to us. That costly demonstration of unexpected love was once and for all. Yes, we don't need it demonstrated again. But at the same time, this is, this is now William Temple I'm quoting here, that, that we are able to see into the nature of the broken heart of God and in pain over the sin of the world. Okay, so now the Father offers that costly love and all of a sudden the scales fall off the eyes of the prodigal. He gives up his hope to solve the problem and he accepts to be found. And the father says he was dead and is alive again, by which he means he was dead and I brought him to life, resurrection. These are divine passives. The next thing that happens, turn the page please. We've got one more story to go through. We've got 10 minutes left. So, the, so, yeah, I had the Bishop of Central Florida say last time I was down there listening to Ken Bailey is like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. So... Uh, why are you laughing? I can't just tell. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was a compliment, I think. <laughs> I'm not real sure, but anyway. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. I'm really, if you get a drink, it's okay. If, you don't, if it's too fast and you can't get all of it, why? that's my fault. But if you got a drink, then, yeah, okay, it's okay. All right, now, so, so okay. Now, what happens next is, is Big Brother comes in from the far country, uh, from, from a distance. And he hears the music. And the big drum beat says there's a party. And the drum beat is loud, and you can hear it through the whole village. The village is only about five acres and about 5,000 people living. The streets are about this wide. The space of this hall here would be the private homes of about 10 families. And so everybody's on top of everybody else, and one drum beat in one house is heard in the whole village. This is the traditional ancient Middle Eastern village. Still cases, you can still find them in many places, and you can see it in the old city of Jerusalem and in the older parts of Bethlehem. 
And so he knows there's a party. He starts down the village street. Oh, wow, the party's at our house. Fantastic. He rushes in to enjoy the party. Suspiciously, he stands outside and he calls to one of the little kids who are out there with their sticks dancing to the music. They're junior high age and they're not allowed to go in and recline with the elders, but they can have a good time outside. And they are enjoying themselves. And he calls one, it's not a servant, the servants are inside busy with the banquet. And he calls the little kid over, and the little kid is the Greek chorus (laughs) that tells you what's really going on. Very important figure. Jesus does this a number of times. Your brother returned. No. This is a rare Greek word. Heike. Your brother, colloquial English, showed up. (laughs) The word returned is deliberately avoided. He didn't return. He came back. Your brother is here. Your father has killed the fatted calf... Because he rejoices in the return of the prodigal. No. What is the banquet all about? We think it's a celebration of the return of the prodigal. That's because we have made Jesus into a Muslim and don't know it. If this is a celebration of the return of the prodigal, there's not going to be one guest. The village hates his guts. He insulted his father and he lost half of the farm. And now he dares show his face? Good grief. They would rather he drop dead in the far country. There's not going to be a single guest show up if this is in honor of the prodigal. It isn't. The father has already announced what the party is all about. He says, we are going to make merry and be glad because this, my son, was dead and is alive. He was dead and I brought him to life. He was lost and is found. Okay, who found him? The father. Where? At the edge of the village. Oh, you mean at the edge of the village he was still lost? You better believe it. He was so lost he thought he was going to write a check and the problem was going to be over. He was that lost. His father found him through by reprocessing his anger into grace and offering a costly demonstration of unexpected love. He, he received him with peace. He didn't say, after you've paid your debts, I'll let you in the door. That's what the older son wants. Now we know why the older son is angry. If it had just been a health report, he would have entered the banquet hall because that means dad has not decided what he's going to do with junior. And the older son wants to be there to argue, throw the bum out until he pays. But if the banquet is a celebration of the success of the father's costly efforts at reconciling his boy, And as the guests of the shepherd rejoice with the shepherd, not the sheep. And the guests of the woman rejoice with the woman, not with the coin. The banquet is in honor of the father and the guests are there to rejoice with the father and not with the son. 
when we did this in the film, the mayor comes in, congratulations, I understand you've reconciled, managed to achieve reconciliation with your son. We're, we're really happy about that. The prodigal's standing in the corner, and he's really embarrassed. He's really embarrassed. And then the mayor says, what are you doing hiding in the corner for? And he kind of shambles over and he says, uh, well, I guess I really blew things. He says, now listen, kid, what your father did for us before the village is something we never could have imagined. We are all still in shock. But if it's okay with your father, it's okay with us. And then the prodigal says, I, I won't let you down, Mr. Mayor, again. I won't let you down. That's how we solve the problem. But it's not in his honor. No way. No one will come. Did you notice that the shepherd is a symbol for God and the father is a symbol for God and so is the woman? There's no choice. Either all three of them are symbols for God and thereby symbols for Jesus and thereby symbols for Christian leadership or none of them are. You can't accept the good shepherd as a symbol for Jesus and the good father when he comes in self-emptying love as a symbol for Jesus without seeing the good woman as a symbol for Jesus. Remember the story of Jacob has a mother and the mother is bad news. She deceives her husband and, uh, against her old, older son and, and she's never heard of again until she dies. Very sad ending to a beautiful love story that started off very nicely. Jesus has no mother in his story. But what does he do? He gets rid of the woman who's got some really dangerous spots on her x-ray and he introduces the good woman for whom there are no dark spots on the x-ray. He elevates the position of women, not he doesn't put them down. He's got the good shepherd, the good woman, and the good father. That's wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. All right, so now what is the, older, what is the father going to do? We've got three minutes left. <laughs> he has now been insulted in public. You're going to marry off your son and at the wedding banquet a brother stands up and has a shouting match with father or mother. This is not the time. If you're mad at your parents, that's okay. You can yell and scream in private, but don't do it before the community at a festive occasion. That's what the older brother has chosen to do. He's going to have a shouting match with his father in front of all the elders of the village and all of the leading members of his own extended family. And his father has every right to say, ignore him and let us proceed with the banquet. He doesn't. He also reprocesses this fresh anger into grace and goes down and out in costly love, more costly than that which was offered to the younger brother because the insult is fresh. The older son chooses to insult his father in public and says, you killed for him the fatted calf. No, the calf is not killed for the father. The calf is killed for the, fa sorry, for the brother. The calf is killed for the father. It is a celebration of the father's having reconciled his boy. It is not a celebration of the return of the prodigal. And the, the older son has just been told that. 
by the little boy. The little boy just said to him, your father killed the fatted calf because he, the father, received him with peace. We've translated that in good health. But the word hugeino translates always in the Hebrew Old Testament Greek, it always translates the word shalom and should be translated with peace. Your, your father has made peace with your brother. Now we know why he's mad. But now he accuses the father of favoritism. And the father is expected to explode and say, this is ridiculous. I gave you everything that was left. Isn't that enough? And now you accuse me of favoritism? What on earth are you talking about? Shut up and get out of here. Father pleads for joy. There isn't any anger out there. He's already reprocessed it into grace. If he hadn't, he wouldn't be standing there. Four times. Twice for the older son, twice for the younger son. And our theme is loud and clear and at the heart of the gospel. Amen.